appreciated the comments. There were comments both in the sermonette and in the sermon about the condition of the world that we find ourselves in right now. And we do seem to be trending toward a certain chaos. If you watch the telecast this weekend, the editors did their usual job at making us look so much better than we deserve to look on the program. And they included so many uh, protests for various things. It seems like everything has a protest, right? There's a reason to be out in the streets, you know, and trying to uh, completely rearrange society in your own image these days. It's, a, it's getting to be a chaotic world. And in the United States, we're not experiencing nearly what, say, they're experiencing in Sri Lanka. But we should not imagine that it's not possible for those conditions to happen here. Uh, if anything, I think the lesson of human history is that those things can. The world is getting to be a a darker and darker place spiritually. And that means we're going to stand out more and more. I, I've perhaps overused this analogy, but I've always learned so much from it. The idea that if you were to walk outside right now, all the stars in the sky are already there, right? There's the big one, the sun, really bright. Don't look right at it. It hurts your eyes. But all the stars, we say the stars come out at night, but they don't actually, right? They're already there. You just can't see them because the sun shines so brightly. But as the sun disappears and the sky starts to dim, then you start to notice they were there all along. And many of us go through this world and we're not noticed so much. But as the world continues to get spiritually darker, we will begin to stand out all the more and we will be noticed. You will be noticed. I will be noticed. But... I'd like to ask the question at the beginning to set the stage. Noticed for what? Noticed for what exactly? There are individuals out there that are clamoring for attention. They've got signs and they're surrounding right now, for instance, the, the homes of the Supreme Court judges, uh, you know, out there on the, the steps of the Supreme Court uh, itself, people who go to Washington, you go to downtown in various places. Uh, we've had sort of a culture of increased protests since the summer, perhaps, of 2020. All sorts of causes, whether it's, uh, you know, causes that some of you might be sympathetic towards and some we might be less sympathetic towards. Uh, there was the, the Black Lives Matter protest in the 2020s. There was the trucker convoy protest about vaccines in, in, uh, uh just, just recently in Canada. There's been protests about, well, currently Roe v. Wade. Everyone's wearing all these, uh, not everyone, I'm exaggerating, but still these, these handmade tail costumes from that, uh, that series, right? So that as if all you know, women are being put into some kind of slavery. Uh, you've got, uh, protests concerning trans sexual rights or transgender rights, as they're called. You've got people protesting the opposite of that. You've just got this kind of protest culture, people wanting to be noticed because they have a message. And in the face of such antics, even though we have strong and firm beliefs, we might tend to think of ourselves as the non-radicals. Right? It's like everyone's radicalized out in the world, increasingly being radicalized, but we're not. We, we, we can easily feel that we are the non-radicals, if you will. You know, sort of the calm ones, right? The ones who aren't radical. But I'd actually like to suggest today, really at the heart of the sermon is this suggestion, that that's not true. We actually, if we're living the life Jesus Christ asks of us, are far more radical than anything you see on the news today. Our faith is an extremely radical 
faith. It's difficult when you talk about radical and faith, when people often think of uh, Islamic extremism and individuals being beheaded and these terrible things. And don't get me wrong, that's very radical. But I would like to argue in many ways our faith truly is far more radical than that. And it might be easy to land on some ideas or to pluck the low-hanging fruit in trying to confirm that. For instance, you might think of the fact that we keep the Sabbath and take it seriously instead of Sunday or some other day. Or you might think of the fact that we don't keep the major holidays that the rest of the world does, even those that consider themselves Christian. We keep the, the holy days in the Bible and we, we're out there pointing out that all those other holidays, there are so many pagan origins to those holidays. And don't get me wrong, that that is radical in a certain sense. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But you know, at the same time, let's say keeping the Sabbath, taking the Sabbath seriously. Well, you know, the conservative side, your your fellows out there like Ben Shapiro, uh, uh, Dennis Prager, right, do good Jews, they might go, yeah, all right, look, here's some, here's some Christians who get it. You know, they know they're keeping the Sabbath. Or even calling Christmas a pagan holiday. That could get you an interview on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow. We have with us today a Christian who says Christian is pagan and all these Christians are wrong. And that might be ready to, to pat you on the back. I'm not saying those things aren't radical. They are things that illustrate our faith to the world. But I'd like to focus more narrowly today on particular radical elements of our faith that do push against the world. In fact, they push inward as well. They push against our human nature in a fairly extreme way. And I'd like to argue that in our day-to-day lives, it is these things that have some of the most potential to make us stand out in the way that Jesus Christ would have us stand out. Uh, They come across, frankly, as uh, uh, almost inhuman in a sense, because they go so directly and radically contrary uh, to everything that human nature would demand of us. So I'd like to focus on those things today, and my title is Our Radical Faith. Our Radical Faith. And we are going to focus very narrowly. There's so many things we could talk about, but I'm actually going to Really just focus on 10 specific verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Just a handful of those commitments. The Sermon on the Mount was an astonishing teaching at the time. Uh, Some of us probably reviewed it during the uh, leading up to the days of unleavened bread. Perhaps even during those days, we tend to have uh, some of those things on mind in terms of what Christ did and, and what he brought and how things changed. And it would take many sermons to go over the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, but to make the point I want to make today, that our faith is actually quite a radical faith, uh, I really just want to focus on ten verses. Uh, These verses represent commitments I want to remind all of us that, that all of us have bought into, that when we were willing to be placed under that water and brought back up by a minister of God and have hands laid on us, so that God's own spirit would be placed within us, we committed to these things. This way of life Jesus Christ talked about, taught to the world then, has taught to the world for thousands of years now through his church, that way of life, we have said, yes, sir, that will from this point forward be my way of life. I will strive to live that day by day, allowing you to live in me and broadcast this to the world. What we see in these teachings are 
those things. And as, as we're going to read them, we're going to mainly focus on Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. In fact, I'll tell you right now the verses we'll look at. Verses 38 through 37, 47. 38 through 37 will be going through negative 1 verses, I suppose. Uh, verses 38 through 47 is going to provide the focus today. And we will be going to other verses as well. So if you have a marker in your Bible of some sort, you might put it right there in Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting around verse 38. If you don't have a marker, keeping a finger there is really awkward. You've done it, right? I've tried to do that because we'll be moving around. So maybe you want to, I don't know, rip the marker out of someone else's Bible and put it in yours. No, that would actually go against many of the things we're going to talk about today. Don't do that. But still, you might want to keep note of it somehow. We're going to be coming back to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, starting in verse 38 and going through verse 47. But I'll launch right into the first item. And we're going to, it's a little difficult because the, the message of these, even these 10 verses, they sort of blend together. There's an overall picture that all of them communicate together that it's, it's, it's a little difficult if you really want to focus on each individual verse or collection of verses as if they say something distinct. So if the things we say today tend to overlap, that's not necessarily wrong. That's partially by, by design. This passage goes very well together uh, as a complete whole. Well, let's jump right in in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. And look at the radical nature of this. We start in verse 38. Jesus Christ said to the crowds and says to us, and Jesus Christ in us continues to say this. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, these two verses to me sort of set the pace for the rest. There's a few things I'd like to say, but the first thing I want to say and this is a theme for all of these, is that it's very easy to get caught up in spending more time explaining what these verses don't say than we spend explaining what they do say. When I say explaining, I mean to ourselves when we're, when we're reading these. I, I feel like personally, perhaps in discussions with others throughout the years, that I've often spent more time trying to explain in verses like 39, no, that doesn't mean if someone slaps you, you have to just stay there, you know, and, and, and keep getting beat up, right? We tend to spend a lot of time trying to say, no, no, this doesn't mean this or this doesn't mean that. But at the same time, God didn't put these things in the Bible for us to simply try to resist the misunderstanding, right? He didn't put these in the, in the Bible simply thinking, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to struggle with this for a long time, you know, and they're finally going to realize what this verse doesn't mean. He put these things in here to teach us, to explain to us something we should be doing, not things that we shouldn't be doing. And I'll, I'll repeat that probably several times because it's a temptation I tend to fall into because why are we so tempted to say that with passages like, say, verse 39, where Christ literally says, here's the words, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why are we just so tempted to dive into explaining what this verse does not mean, as accurate as those explanations may be? Because that is a radical statement. That's an extreme statement. If it doesn't, if it doesn't sound extreme to hear the words, I tell you not to resist an evil person. It's because familiarity 
sometimes it doesn't breed contempt, but it does breed sort of a an apathy or a a certain callous. I hate to use the word callous, but we do sometimes start to forget just how radical statements like these are because we're so familiar with them. This is a rather extreme statement. Let's start in verse 38 and focus on these two verses. It says, Jesus Christ starts off here, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The pattern he takes here is a pattern he uses in several places in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard one thing. In this case, it's a quote from the Bible. You can go look in Exodus 21. You'll, you'll find it there. It's in God's law. He says, you've heard this taught, but I tell you this. This fits this particular pattern. And too often, this particular passage, some have thought he was saying, you know, you've heard it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Like it should be a cruel world and that you should just fight back all the time. But I'm saying something nicer than that. That is a, that is a twist of this age. He's not saying that at all. Again, verse 38, where he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We won't take the time to go back and look at that passage. But if, if you if you want to do that, by all means, feel free, not right now during the sermon, but note it later and go look for that reference. I do believe it's in Exodus 21. We had a QA and a about it recently, a few magazines ago related to abortion, because it's also that part where he says a life for a life. Right, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We tend to relate it in terms of vengeance and the rest. But if you actually look at that law in the context of all the laws of the peoples around and the historical laws of mankind, that statement, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it wasn't about going and getting vengeance. It was about restraining the human passage, uh, passions of authorities to punish harder than they should. You know, if you knock a tooth out, you shouldn't get your head cut off. He was saying just because you, you know, you, you make the punishment proportional to the crime. It was an amazing statement of fairness and justice in the Old Testament. In a world where fairness and justice could not be counted upon, where kings just had their way with the peoples, whatever laws their whims dictated, that's what happened. You know, minor affront to the king, off with your head. Uh, something the king didn't like, off with your head. God was saying, you're not going to be like that. Punishments should be proportional to crimes. If someone knocks out a tooth, you don't just kill the person. Right? You punish proportionally to that. And he's not saying you got to line the guy up and, and pop out a tooth on that guy either. He's talking about the proportionality of things. Again, you read the body of Scripture. It highlights those. So Jesus Christ in verse 38 is not presenting to the people uh, an Old Testament command of cruelty. He's presenting them an Old Testament command that had a hierarchy of fairness about it and justice about it. So he's not trying to contradict cruelty. He's trying, as we will see routinely, to raise the standard. Because when we are wronged, don't we want to see some form of justice take place? When someone has, if you will, knocked out our tooth, don't we want to see something in place? Even if it's just fair, something that's just fair and makes things equal. That is natural. That, that's human nature. We want to see someone pay a price. We're not necessarily demanding an excessive price, but at least an equal price. 
And Jesus Christ is telling all of us, rather, verse 39, I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, that seems crazy, right? And it's easy to dismiss it. In fact, let me make sure this is plain. If you're hanging around at the local Walmart and you're shopping for croissants uh, for your family because they want something you know snooty for breakfast so it's a croissant breakfast you're there and someone comes up to you and just slap randomly hits you on the right side of your face you don't have to stand there and think oh great now i just got to stand here and let this guy random stranger guy hit me on the left side oh i can't i don't really want to do this but i'm a christian you know go ahead that's Jesus Christ isn't saying that. He didn't do that, right? There were times when crowds wanted to throw him off a cliff. He didn't go, well, I guess i got to be a Christian. I am Jesus Christ. I've got to let them throw me off a cliff. No, he got away. If someone hits you on the right cheek, feel free to run away to the door in Walmart yelling, hey, there's a guy in here hitting people on the right cheek. You know, Watch out for your right cheek. You, the, none of these commands are telling you you don't have to use your brain, Right? But again, we can get caught up in trying to say what they don't say. The fact is, Jesus Christ was trying to raise the bar, as he did in so many other things. The law said, don't murder, right? And, he's, and Jesus Christ said, don't just not murder. You can't even hate the person in your heart. The law said, don't commit adultery. Jesus Christ said, I'm telling you, you can't even lust after someone in your heart. The... The Sermon on the Mount is about raising the bar. There's a saying, I can't remember who I was talking with uh, about it recently, and apparently it didn't originate with Mike Tyson, but I know since Mike Tyson said something akin to it, it became very popular. Some of you are familiar with the boxer, Mike Tyson, uh, of the past, and so it feels old to say of the past, but Mike Tyson said something to the effect of once, you know, everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. And then all of a sudden, all those plans are gone, right? Everybody's got a plan up to the moment they get punched in the mouth. And then they don't have plans anymore. Everything is suddenly a different world. Verse 39 has Jesus Christ telling us, you know what? I'll give you a plan. You get hit in the right cheek. You give someone the left cheek. You know, with many of these verses, again, we're trying to tame them. But we must not rob Jesus Christ of the teeth of what he's saying. Because this should sound like something awkward. It should sound like something difficult. And what he's saying when you put the passages together is that the law talks about justice. Indeed, you might be owed a certain justice. And he's saying there are times when you should forego that. There's a better good with you being willing to not seek what you are owed, to not seek vengeance. And frankly, there are times when your job as a Christian is simply to stand there and take it, even when it's not deserved. And that's radical. If you don't think that's radical, then you're not thinking. There's nothing in human nature that says sometimes when you're being persecuted, your job is to stand there and take it. Sometimes when you've experienced a wrong, your job is to stand there and take it. Nothing in us says that. 
But as we'll see in so many of these things, the one who tells us that in this passage did that himself. He went through this himself. He was tortured. He was beaten for things he did not deserve. And he did not speak a word truly in his own defense. Because there was something larger at stake. We should not rob Christ of the force of what he's saying. Too often, and I, when I say we, please include me in this. I'm, I'm not standing here atop Mount Olympus trying to throw lightning bolts of, of condemnation or for that matter, shine sunbeams of praise. Uh, I struggle with these things. Part of why these things have come to my attention over the course of my life is that I have recognized the demands they make and they are a challenge. And I can. And so I like to think the rest of us sometimes do. Sometimes we go to the law to try to parse it in such a way to justify what we want to do. We go to look for what we can in the law to justify the stance we want to take or the action we're considering or the worldview we like when perhaps we've been told in some way that it's not as Christian as we think it is. Let me give an example. Uh, again, we'll be coming back to Matthew 5, but turn to Exodus chapter 20. And let's discuss a long time teaching of the church. It is a long time teaching of God's church that we are not to kill people. That there is something unchristian in teaching ourselves uh, to make sure we can kill somebody if we need to. Need to. And so sometimes people will look at Exodus chapter 20. This is part of the Ten Commandments, right? They'll look at Exodus 20 and verse 13, and they'll read in the New King James, which does translate accurately, Exodus 20 and verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, the Old King James, I think, says you shall not kill. And the New King James here says you shall not murder. And sometimes people will want to show, well, yeah, but you know, uh, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm packing heat... I like to talk tough, you know, when I'm packing heat uh, to make sure that I can, you know, uh, intervene if something bad is happening or whatever. You know, if I, I, I'm not training to kill someone because I really want to murder someone. I'm talking about, you know, self-defense. I'm talking about, you know, what if there's a home invasion or something? It's a, it's a difficult world out there. And, and, and they'll say, if you look, really, that word there is murder, you know, and I'm not talking. I'm not talking about murder. And I'm not saying that 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 all killing is is murder. Uh, executions, for instance, are not are not murder. The state has a certain right to to enforce its penalties. God Himself says life for life. We've already read that. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that, but the church has long recognized what Jesus Christ is doing. God calls us to something higher. God is looking for us to not just borrowing the words of Paul to try to figure out what we can do lawfully, but also look, what is it that edifies? What is it that is helpful? What is Jesus Christ calling us to? In fact, if you look at this prophecy that we'll read here in Isaiah, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Look at Isaiah chapter 42. In the book of Isaiah, 
we have a prophecy that Jesus Christ satisfied and that the Sermon on the Mount was very much a part of. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 21. Here in the New King James it reads in Isaiah 42 and verse 21. The eternal is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He, speaking of Christ, the one to come, will exalt the law and make it honorable. A long time teaching of the church is that Christ didn't do away with the law. He magnified it. And other translations use the word magnify there. Uh, the King James Version, the Old King James says magnify the law. Uh, the English Standard Version translates, says that he will magnify the law and make it glorious. That Jesus Christ didn't come to do away with the law. He came to raise the bar. He came to, to tell his people, those who would claim his name, that they are to seek the spirit of these laws, not just the letter, not just to look at what the letter allows and such, but to seek to have within their beating hearts the spirit of this law and to hold themselves to a higher standard than those who are looking for excuses. God isn't looking for people seeking to keep the bar low. He's looking for a people that are willing to take up the challenge of embracing a higher bar. He's not looking for people who just want to argue, I'm justified to act in this way. This person did this. This person did this. He's looking for someone to act like he did, who held himself back from so many things he would have been justified in doing. His whole purpose for being here was to save a people who did not deserve it. It says in Romans that he died for us while we were still sinners. He died for you. He died for me. Not because he looked at us and said, "Why? Well, I've just got to go down and save that person there. From everything they've done, I'm obligated to go down. He did it because he loves us, even when we were not yet lovable in that sense. Again, going back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39. Reading the words again, Matthew 5, verse 39, Christ saying, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's jump ahead a bit and add to that verse 43, starting in verse 43. Christ says, you, this is verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And it doesn't mean pray for them as I pray, Father, that every lightning bolt in the five mile radius of this person will strike him, you know, and turn him to dust. Uh, it's talking about blessing them, actually doing good to the people who hate you. Let me ask you sincerely to meditate on, as, as I struggle to meditate on, when I read these verses, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. How can we reconcile these verses with spending 
hours training how to put a bullet through someone to kill them. How can someone look at these verses sincerely claiming to be a follower of Christ and say, yes, I believe in these verses, but I do dedicate a good part of each week to making sure I can kill people. You know, brethren, there are quote-unquote Christians out there, mainstream Christians. Well, I say mainstream. One that comes to mind is uh, is Glenn Beck, and I guess he wouldn't technically be mainstream. I think he's a Mormon. If he's not, you can tell me in the second resurrection. But regardless, you know, I, I, I know out there he's he seems like a really good person. I used to listen to him on the radio a lot, Glenn Beck, back before he had uh, TV and streaming channels and such. And I, I really liked some things about what he would say, really, because he, he seemed like different than many other um, political commentators because he would focus on, on principles and, and talk about some things that were a little more fundamental, and I always appreciated that. Uh, and then eventually, you know, word sort of spread about him. He got a little, I think he was on Fox for a while, and then he wasn't, and then he had his own uh, streaming network and does things, and he's got commercials because you got to pay for stuff. And I'm, and I'm not even knocking him. I hope this is clear. I'm not knocking him for this. You don't know what you don't know. But I remember at least, uh, I don't know, it's been three or four years ago now, but but watching some of that and seeing how many commercials, it just seemed, so many of his commercials were about ammo and buying ammo and make sure you had a lot of ammo, right, in your basement. They're always concerned, what if the Second Amendment, you know, they start circumventing the Second Amendment and, and suddenly you can't get ammo when you really want some. You want to drive up ammunition sales, start... You know, put someone in office who thinks they might be removing the, uh, or somehow trying to circumvent uh, what are interpreted as the freedoms concerning the Second Amendment. And, you know, we can see those things, and these people can be appealing to us. But, brethren, are we allowing them to influence us versus remembering that Christ called us to influence them? These are not Christians, they can say so many right things on television. They can say so many right things on our, our talk shows, on the radio. But they are not following Jesus Christ. They're following another Jesus Christ. These are things we know. These are things we've taught for years. We know them, but we can momentarily sometimes forget them. Because we're just so grateful to hear a program that seems to get it in some way. It's like, oh, this guy understands. He understands uh, the importance of family. Or he understands that, that, that it's, it's moral problems in the world and not just economic. And the devil is just as delighted if we're drawn to that. So we start buying in their ideals as he would be if we're drawing in anything else, as long as it's pulling us away from the truth. He would love for us to start defining what is true in the Bible based on what the very convincing unconverted say in the world. Let me actually challenge you with this. Think about this. If you haven't thought about this before, let's say we're in a terrible circumstance. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, you've got enough, if you're a formula, you know, we've got the formula shortages right now. So let's say you really need baby formula for some reason and you've got enough and then other families start showing up with their babies because they don't have enough. Is it time for you or your husband to get the rifle and stand by the door and tell them to go seek it elsewhere? Is that is that is that the exact example Jesus Christ wants his people to give the world in hard times? Or is it a willingness to share 
at risk. Praying that perhaps God will multiply our formula like the loaves and the fishes. But because he's given us what we have to do something more than just preserve our own lives with. But to set an example that no other humans in the world would set because they don't have God's spirit. They're not led by the son of God and his perfect example. These are real life questions we need to consider now because while we know hard times are coming, we don't know the details of them. We do need to consider them. We need to ask ourselves to be actively training to kill another human being. Can I actually reconcile that with the teachings of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I remember being in a wonderful spokesman club once. I won't, uh, I won't go into the details. I'll be glad to tell you individually. It was great. Uh, I always loved table topics in spokesman club because the, the guy asking the questions could think of a really hard question and then the minister had to get up and answer it. You know, it was a lot of fun. You said, we're going to get the minister today. You know, we're going to get this really crunchy question. And then one day I was the minister and I didn't like that so much anymore. I didn't like, I didn't like having to go up and give the right answer. Suddenly there's, there's a lot more accountability. Uh, but I remember in particular a spokesman club I was in in Dallas and it was a question that you could tell the, the guy asking it, he was doing his best to craft a scenario where you would shoot somebody. He was doing his job to try to put everybody on the spot. It went to ludicrous proportions. I won't go into details, but he was doing his best to try to create this scenario where, where you would have to conclude the right thing is to, you know, to, to shoot this guy and try to kill him. And I was looking forward to Mr. O'Gwen getting up and giving you know, the answer, because I, I knew, aha, it's not me, it's somebody else. That'll never be me. But anyway, so there he was, and he had to give the answer. And his his answer was actually, now that I think about it, astonishingly similar to Mike Tyson's. I don't know what to think about that. But it had the wisdom that Mike Tyson couldn't bring. He said, you know, you can have all your plans, and you can reason out what you would do in one of those terrifying moments. But he said, honestly... When that moment actually occurs, all those plans go out the window. What you end up doing in that moment is a reflection of the relationship you have built with God and Jesus Christ in the years leading up to that moment. Because in that moment, that's what happens. What happens is what Christ in you has been freed to do. I didn't like the answer because it put so much on me. I, I, I love answers that are formulaic, you know, but I did like the answer because I knew it was the hard truth that I needed to hear. You know, Mr. Ames likes to emphasize uh, a three-word statement that Mr. Armstrong would emphasize, that God reigns supreme. Do we trust that in these kind of moments that God was aware that they would happen? That Do we trust that God wasn't caught off guard in those circumstances, that he's not surprised by the circumstance, that he wasn't somewhere off and thinking, oh no, I wasn't paying attention. Now my son or daughter is in this life threatening circumstance. Well, you know, I'll do better next time. That's not how God works. If these things happen, they don't happen in a vacuum where he is not present. And let me Ed, these are hard questions. I'm not saying they aren't. That's why these things are challenging. And we're spending a lot of time with this one because it lays the foundation for the rest. Let me add, there's nothing wrong with struggling, say, to protect your wife. I, you know, to a certain extent, I'm, this is going to sound really, really dumb. I'm kind of fearful, you know, to a certain extent, 
uh, for the person who would seek to attack my wife. Because they're going to face the fiercest, chubby mathematician, you know, they've ever, they've ever met in their life, right? Uh, but let me, let me present you with two statements. Two statements. And I hope you see the difference between them. Because it's meant to be a difference that reflects something internally. First statement. I will kill anyone who tries to harm my wife. By the way, don't take that as a sound bite and edit that out and use that somewhere. Uh, so first statement, this statement, I will kill anyone who tries to harm my wife. Second statement, anyone who wants to harm my wife would have to do so over my dead body. There's a subtle difference, maybe not so subtle, but there's a difference between the two. Again, there are people out there with whom we sympathize who would tell us that we have certain responsibilities in that case. Let me ask you, how many of you can name a passage in Scripture where we see our first century brothers and sisters in the faith really arming up and stocking up so they can defend themselves against Rome? I, I can't. I can't find one. What I do see are examples of zealots and others being called out of that way of life to what Jesus Christ has to offer. And it's something different. And brothers and sisters in the faith, all of us think, I understand sometimes we think this is a, this is a harsh, uh, virtually persecuting culture we have right now. Rome, under which our first century brothers and sisters lived, lived under tyranny where our brothers and sisters were tied to stakes. And set on fire by Emperor Nero to illuminate his gardens and his games. To think that somehow we should be taking some kind of measures that they never took makes no sense to me. I do not see it reflected in the words of the Bible. God does call us to be radicals, brethren. But does he call us to be radicals on behalf of the Second Amendment? Does he call us to be radicals on behalf of Jesus Christ? That was a lot on a few verses. Let's take a look at verse 40. Let's move to another set. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 40. Another one. Again, it's easy to wonder. If anyone wants to sue you, this is verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic... Let him have your cloak also. Well, so I guess every time you're sued, you just need to give up, right? You know, uh, it's time to be a pushover. And anyone can take anything they want from you if they just sue you. Is that what this verse is really saying? No, it's not saying that. It's not saying that you have to be just a complete pushover all the time. But it is about more than just being generous. Uh Again, we read in verse 44 about loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those who hate you, praying for those who spitefully use you. Christ is trying to communicate to us that we should be willing to give more than we are obligated to give, even to our adversaries and even to our opponents. And even to our enemies. Again, he lived this life. What did Christ owe us? Nothing. What did he give us? 
everything. He's not setting a standard for us that he himself did not live. Now, similarly, look at Matthew verse 42. This one used to torture me somehow when I was in junior high. I'll explain in a minute. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So when I was in junior high, I, I knew this verse. I was a... Yeah, I went to, to church with my, my dad, my grandmother, my grandfather. My, my mother did not go to church. She realized she'd get a lot of laundry done on Sunday. Uh, and my dad went because his grandma, his, his mother and father went. But I'm not trying to pick on them. They're good people. But I went and I listened and paid attention and I was interested in, in biblical things even when I was young. And, and I remember hearing this, whether it was in Sunday school or whether it was actually in the sermon. But I remember hearing this, for, to give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Well, when I was in junior high, there was this guy who was a bit of a bully, and he would go around and ask for, you know, people's lunch money, or their, we had Coke machines, which was not all that wise to give a bunch of young kids Coke machines, but regardless, we had, you know, Coke machines, if you wanted something for lunch, you'd get 50 cents, and I think it was 50, back then it was probably cheaper, but regardless, you could have some money, and he would ask. And say, oh, hey, you know, uh, give, give me 50 cents, I'll pay you back. He was never going to pay you back. He just never did. I never saw him once pay. Maybe he did. Maybe every Tuesday, people that had given him money, he would meet behind school and, and pay them all back. But it was routine for him. And I remember him asking me once, hey, hey, uh, give, me, give me 50 cents, I'll pay you back. And I do remember, I, the details are fuzzy, but I remember the moment I thought to myself, oh, does Jesus say I've got to give him my money? I mean... I want a Coke later, you know, I want to be able to get a Coke, is this, is this what he's saying? And I, I admit I struggled with that, right? And I can't remember if I did or not. In fact, I was a young, dumb kid. I probably lied and said I didn't have anything, though I'm pretty sure I did. Um, don't lie, kids. It's bad, right? But back then I didn't, I didn't know. I was, I was still learning and we can be weak. But I struggled with that. Well, again, the Bible is not trying to say turn off your brain. It's not trying to say be a pushover. You know, if this is your lunch money, God isn't necessarily expecting you to go hungry, let alone to empower a bully. You know what? At the same time, I don't know what his life was like. I mean, yeah, I know he was a bully. I knew I almost had a fight with him once. That's another tale for another time. Thankfully, I did not. But uh, saved by the bell, I'll just go there. It was really helpful. But that said... I didn't didn't get up in a fight with him there, but he he was a bit of a bully. So I know what his life was like at school, but you know that starts somewhere. It's entirely possible that the only reason he got to eat each day is because of the money that he would quote unquote borrow from kids. I have absolutely no idea. It's very easy to judge, I know. This is talking about the things that are obligated of us and being willing to do more than that and not looking to get back everything we are owed. We're, you know, we're living in a world right now where everyone, it seems, is demanding their rights. Right? The right for this, the right for that. And don't get me wrong, it's wonderful to live in a country where rights do mean something. I'm not trying to knock that. I don't want to trade this for a dictatorship for anything. But we are living in a world where people are just passionately fighting for their rights. People in the street for the right to this, the right to that, my right this. And sometimes they're straight up legitimate rights and sometimes they're not. They're made up rights. But everyone is about finding their rights and securing their rights and advancing their rights to the point. You know what's radical? What's radical is not fighting for your rights. What's radical is not trying to advance 
and get what's yours. What's radical is actually being willing to give what's yours, even when the other party doesn't deserve it. Again, keep your place here in Matthew chapter 5, and let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's in a particular circumstance uh, in, with Corinth, and he's trying to instruct them about things. And things were pretty messed up in Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians is one of those letters I feel like has so much to say to the United States and the modern state of things. We're messed up in terms of modern modernity, and uh, the Corinthians were certainly messed up. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's dealing with a particular situation. It kind of gets set up here in verse 1. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells them, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You know, there are situations apparently in Corinth where you had brother and brother or sister and sister or brother and sister in Christ that were at loggerheads about something. Maybe they were business associates. Who really knows what it was? But people literally, potentially in the same congregation right here in Corinth, who had difficulties, who were taking their difficulties between spirit-filled brothers in Christ and going to the courts of heathens, going to the courts of the pagans and having their judges adjudicate such things. And Paul says it is scandalous that this would be the case. How could this possibly be the case? He says, don't you know that you're going to be judging the whole world And you can't judge a worldly thing like this between you? He goes on, is there no one, he says, in the congregation? Is there no, is there no elder? Is there no deacon? Is there just no pillar in the church that you can trust to sort this out and to make a decision amongst you? He said it was a scandal. It was a shame to the church. And he says in particular in verse seven of first Corinthians six, he says in first Corinthians six and verse seven, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? You don't have to raise your hand or anything, but I hope that please you can affirm in some way in your mind and in your heart that that sounds radical. That that is the opposite of human nature. That this is a radical thing for someone to tell someone. To me, Paul is as bold as all get out. Do they they say that in North Carolina and Texas? We would say as all get out. But to me, Paul is as bold as all get out to say, you know what? You know, I'm telling you, instead of doing this, why don't you just accept being cheated? Why don't you just accept being wronged? That is an extreme statement. That is a radical statement. It's a radical faith. Let me ask you, how many of you have advised your children? Hey, you know, sometimes if someone's really treating you wrong, you know what, son? Yeah, just accept that. You know, just go ahead and accept that and put up with that. Well, of course, we don't tell them that. They need to seek out help. They need to seek out someone. And yet at the same time, I I would not have realized how often I say this. I would say this as a parent until I, I had been one. And that was how many times when you have, say, oh, I don't know, say two sons uh, who uh, are at loggerheads about things 
and you've been brought in, you know, you're not there in the, in the beginning. You can't actually see, you know, the origin of the story and what's actually happened. All you know is that both of them are upset and both of them feel completely wronged by the other one. And so you realize, well, it's time to put on my King Solomon hat, you know, and you come in to do your best to sort through it all. And then you realize, yeah, I don't have what it takes. There's no way I'm going to sort through this knot. You know, they've tied in terms of their wrongs and their rights and their emotions. They're, they're much better now, by the way. They're much older. But regardless, you know, those things, and you're doing your best. And I found so often the advice I would give was, I was often, look, just if, if just one of you chooses to be the adult, then all this gets better. By saying that, what I really meant to say, what I should have said, perhaps, was if one of you would choose to be the Christian. If one of you would choose the first Corinthians six, seven path, that sometimes the greater good is achieved simply by accepting a wrong and simply by letting yourself be cheated. It doesn't mean you're a pushover. I would argue that in those moments, it takes wisdom to realize that's necessary. A wisdom most people don't have. It takes a strength of character to be the person who does that. By the way, I'm not talking about accepting wrong or letting yourselves be cheated in the sense that, oh yeah, I'll accept this wrong for now, right? You know, I'm not talking about that. Or it's like, oh no, I get it. You know, sometimes I've got to take the path of Christ and I need to be willing to accept wrong, you know, that's been done to me while we just grow bitter about it, right? Over the days and the weeks that follow. I'm talking about something that frankly takes superhuman abilities, you know, we have Pentecost that's coming up. I hope that someone we're talking about today helps us to appreciate the fact that God has not abandoned us to these kind of standards that seem humanly impossible. The logic that sometimes to win, we need to be willing to lose. You don't see that logic in the corporate world. You don't see that uh, virtually any place else other than the actual body of Christ. It takes abilities that are beyond human but that is what god expects us to realize sometimes that not only do i need to yield even though i'm in the right even though i'm convinced i'm in the right that the right thing to do is to yield and to love my brother and still be willing every sabbath to shake his hand at the door and still be willing to put on a smile still be willing to pray for him and for good things for him because I'm following in the steps of Jesus Christ when I do that. Again, a radical faith. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And let's look at another similar passage. It's actually one we just skipped over a moment ago in this collection of 10. Verse 41. Matthew 5 and verse 41. Jesus Christ says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, I thought this was interesting. And it's the origin, as best I can tell, of our phrase, going the extra mile. We go the extra mile, right? Which means we go further than we have to. In Jesus Christ's day, this was a, as best as I understand the history, this was a literal possibility. 
as in, again, as I have understood and as I, I read, every once in a while it's good to reconfirm the things you've read, make sure they're facts if they're not in the Bible, and I have not reconfirmed this in a long time. So we have a Roman history expert here to you, Smith, you just made that up. Let me know. But I read that when the Roman army was going through various towns and cities, that at times they had the right to compel someone to carry their gear, but for no longer than a mile. Uh, back then, they didn't have like troop carriers that could carry all the munitions and all the rest. They had to carry a lot of that themselves. Uh, and so every once in a while to keep the army fresh, to help them go further, they had the right to take someone and compel them to carry their gear, but only up to a mile. The person had rights as well, and their right was to not have to carry it for more than a mile. Then after that, they could say, you know, I... I, I hope this was helpful, I guess. And I go, well, thank you very much. And he'd either put it on his back or who knows, maybe he grabbed the next sucker, right? You know, and have him carry it the next mile. But that was the limit of your obligation. Jesus Christ is compelling us in these chapters to ignore the limits of our obligations. And he says, whoever compels you to go one mile, you go with him too. Because you're not like everybody else. You're going to be one of mine and you're going to go too. And I can only imagine the first century where they could have actually, again, done this literally, where some Roman soldier grabs some guy, Rufus. That's a Latin name, by the way, Rufus. If you didn't know, it sounds like it's, you know, from the hills. But it's Rufus. He grabs Rufus, you know, and says, all right, hey, you know, it's a sorry. It's just your lucky day, you know. Uh, you got to carry my stuff. So he gives his stuff to Rufus, and Rufus hoofs it, you know, for a mile. And he says, all right, hey, I really appreciate that for the break. Thanks, and you, you, it's been a mile. And Rufus says, oh, I'll go another mile if you want. Uh, yeah, all right, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, okay. Looking at Rufus, kind of strange. And Rufus doing his best to whistle a happy tune under the burden of the guy's gear, right? And goes another mile with him. Because whether he knows it or not, and whether he'll ever find out in this life, or whether he finds out in the resurrection, he happened to encounter one of Christ's. Who might have even thought to himself, well, I can't believe I'm doing this literally today, but I guess I am. Well, of course, we don't necessarily have that opportunity to do this literally, but we do have this opportunity. Is there anyone in your life, is there anyone, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ, and it often is because uh, we're close, or whether it's someone outside of that who in some way is compelling you to go a mile further than you feel you should? You know, sometimes we have that, that, that brother or sister, you know, even in minute ways. Maybe they just have bad breath. And uh, they're wanting to talk real close to us after services, you know, and they get real close. It's like, all right, extra mile, you know, extra mile. They should brand an extra mile gum, you know, just to sell amongst the you know, church of God people. One of the best uh, 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 spokesman club questions I ever heard is, so you got a brother in the church has really bad breath. What are your obligations? And we, we had to admit we really didn't know. And I got to admit, I've been that guy many times. That's the one thing I was thankful for about masks is it protected some other people from me after giving a sermon when my breath gets really bad. It's a little more information than I know all of you need to know. But sometimes it's more than that. Right? Again, sometimes you've been wronged in some way. Sometimes it's someone who's hard to be close to in the church. Now, maybe they're one of those who feel they've got a right to speak their mind all the time. Some of you know who you might be. I'm not thinking of anybody, just so you know. But some of you might think, oh, I, I was just kind of bragging about that the other day. Is I have to let people know what I, what I think. That's just me. Right? That's just the way I am. I don't hold anything back. I give it to people straight whether they like it or not. That's, that's the way I am. 
Well, let me just remind you, if that happens to be you, that God's bringing no one into his kingdom just as they are, right? There's an old hymn, just as I am. There's a reason we don't sing that hymn, right? God requires all of us to be growing to be better. But I'm not talking about that person right now. I'm talking about the person who is who struggles with people like that. To be friends with a person like that, let alone to be a brother or sister in Christ with a person like that. Why do we struggle? Because that person is compelling us to go a mile that maybe we don't want to have to go. And can I read these passages and think, you know what? I'm going to go too. I'm going to go too. I'm going to be this person's brother in Christ if it takes everything in me, you know, and commit ourselves to that, let alone, frankly, people in the world that have even more excuse not to know how they should be or how they should behave. Again, let's continue. We're getting close to wrapping up these particular verses. We've read some of these before. Let me go ahead and read them just for the sake of continuity. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, we've read before. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Now stop there. This is how crucial all of these things are. This is how crucial it is not to make excuses for why we don't have to do them, but rather to have a heart in us that seeks to do them. Not to think, okay, I don't really need to let someone hit me and keep hitting me. Of course you don't. At the same time, what is this demanding of you? What is this demanding of me? Jesus Christ in us longs to live the meaning of these verses. How crucial is this? Will we do it so we may be sons of our Father in heaven? If that's important to us, then all of these obligations are important to us. If that's not important to us, why are we here? These extreme radical obligations are part and parcel of everything we are here about and everything we're trying to achieve on earth. Continuing verse 45. Why would that make us like our father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Let me I'm not going to turn this into true confessions, but I hope I hope you can relate a little bit to this. If you've ever had someone in the course of your life, I've lived 52 years. I've had enough years to have difficult relationships uh, here and there. Uh, mainly with my children. No, I'm just kidding. They're doing they're doing great. Uh, but you know, I've had difficult working relationships. You know, I've worked in the world for years before I was called in the ministry. I've had you know challenges. And even if it's not, even if it's in school, it's something else. Have you ever known someone who you know you, when you're thinking of this list and it says he send makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good? You're thinking, well, I think I know which one that guy is, right? Uh, that's, that's not one of the good, you know, that guy. You know, I know how he's cheating his way up the ladder. You know, I know how he's uh, how he's doing doing me personally wrong. I know how that report he turned in was a report he copied from, from Sue in the other cubicle. And she deserves the credit and not. And so you see people who don't deserve good. And then you see them being rewarded. You see it just being poured on them. And let me confess... I find that difficult sometimes. It's hard. 
especially when their wrongs have been toward me. And I'm thinking, well, God, I deserve rain. But you know he doesn't deserve any rain. His flowers should dry up and shrivel in the pot and never see the light of day again. And I am not in that moment being like my father in heaven. I, if you just took that and turned it into a spirit being in the millennium, wouldn't just be waiting for someone not to go to the Feast of Tabernacles to get rain. I'd be denying rain all over the place, right? If I were in charge of rain now, I'm sure there's lots of people I would decide don't get any rain. But God, throughout history, has actually, other than moments he has selected, has sent rain on the just and the unjust. Has shined his own sun, S-U-N, on the good and on the evil. Continuing the next two verses, we'll look at the first one. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And man, if you live in North Carolina, you know how terrible tax collectors are. Uh, let me say it was worse then. It's not that Jesus Christ hated tax collectors, right? He, he literally made one of them uh, his disciple, right? His apostle, right? Matthew was a tax collector. But he did know the people hated them. And he also knew that many of them were corrupt. You know, back then, if you were a tax collector, again, as I understand the history, your job certainly was to take taxes. But how did you get paid? Well, you got paid by taking a little more. Right? So you took the taxes the people owed and you took money for yourself. And maybe if there was some coming in from, say, a central source... Still, tax collectors would often pad what they took. They would take more than they had the right to take. And often, these were people who lived in your area. You knew these people. And so when you see uh, Mr. Ceiling Wall there in Nazareth, and you're driving your beat-up old donkey, and he's driving this shiny Tesla chariot, right, you know, through town, and you realize, because I'm not trying to make light of this, it is hard when you realize, you know, you know where he got that? You know how he pays for that? He pays for it with the money I didn't have to feed my children this week. He pays for that life with the cries my children give me when they're hungry and I have nothing. That's how people felt about tax collectors. And so when Jesus Christ is here in verse 46, and he asks all of us through the ages, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? The people that treat them well, don't they treat those people well? He continues, verse 47. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than other people do? What makes you any different than the rest of the world? Do not even the tax collectors do that? The people you were just cussing out perhaps an hour before, don't even they do those things? Let me actually put it in this context. You know, think about the animal kingdom, in particular dogs. I, I used to think I was a dog guy, and I've ever since I've had kids and stuff, it's been nothing but cats. I don't know how that happened. But regardless, I, I do love dogs. I think dogs are special creatures. I think that God knew he was creating a creature that would eventually be amongst us and that we would pet and make goofy names and the rest. But that said, even a dog, 
uh, knows. If you treat a dog well, you pet it, you, you nurture it, you care for it, it loves you. You're home and it's excited, right? And it's licking your hand. It's like, oh, I can't believe it. I know it's only an hour, but I thought you were going to be gone forever. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're home. You know, dogs make you feel good as a person, right? Because few creatures on earth love you as much as your dog. That's just the way. It's an animal love. It's not the same as human love. But still, they make you feel good, right? But you treat an animal harshly. When a dog grows up seeing a harsh hand, a hand that beats it, a hand that mistreats it. The dog cowers back. A dog in a corner about to be mistreated bites back. It responds with harshness. In a sense, you could say, if you only treat those well who treat you well, congratulations, you're a dog. That's how high you've climbed And Jesus Christ is saying, the kingdom will be filled with more than dogs. I don't want you to be an animal. I want you to be me. I want you to reflect me to the rest of the world. And I want you to treat others the way I treated them, regardless of the kind of people they were. I think one of the best examples of this is, at least for me personally, one that's impacted me is in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we certainly won't read the entire passage, but it's an example that God saw fit to record for the ages for all of us. And it's the example of Stephen. Stephen, as a deacon in the church, uh, was in a circumstance where he's talking to the leaders uh, there, he's to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish men and women. He's talking. He's essentially doing the work. He's preaching. The, he's telling them of their history. And you can read everything that Stephen says, and he's saying nothing but facts. Nothing but facts. Facts that cannot be denied. But the people just get infuriated. They don't want to hear the facts. They don't want to hear these scriptures. They don't want to hear the truth of God. And it's, it's, it's easy to just think of this without really diving into it. And I've, I know I, some of you probably more so than I, have spent time meditating about Stephen's example. That very likely as the crowd is getting angrier and angrier, we read they begin gnashing their teeth. That is not a normal human action. You don't gnash your teeth every day. These are people that were furious and they were murderous. And surely some in that crowd he knew. He'd been in synagogue with. Maybe some of the priests he'd even counseled for some reason. He knew some of the faces in that crowd. And as he goes on and on, it says in verse 57. Acts chapter 7 This is after God has given him a vision of Jesus Christ standing at his right hand to really, in a sense, at least one reason, what an honor uh, given what he was about to undergo. And and God knew what he was about to undergo. It says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 57, once he referred to that vision, it says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. That seems so childish, but don't, aren't there times when you and I want to do that? 
I will say there's times when I want to do that, when I just want to stop my ears because what I'm hearing is not something I want to hear. Whether it makes me sad or angry, whatever it is, and we just want to be like children, you know, the old stereotype of kid put fingers in his ears, la, 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 you know, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Well, that's essentially what they wanted to do, but it wasn't like a child. They were infuriated at the things they heard. And it says specifically, they cried aloud with a loud voice. That was a cry of murderous intent. They ran at him with one accord, one purpose. That purpose was to kill him. That purpose was to make sure that the man that had so infuriated them never breathed another breath, carrying out words like he had carried out of his mouth. Doing the job Jesus Christ Assigned to the church. Now, I don't want to be gruesome, but it's important to understand. They were taking Stephen to be stoned. And that is a that is an unpleasant way to die. It served its a purpose in the Old Testament. That's I don't want to go too far afield, but there were some sins. It was it's it's important. It was important for the life of Israel to understand. Sin affects the entire society. And there were some sins that needed to be stopped by death under the old covenant. They would corrupt the entire nation if they were allowed. Many of those sins have been allowed in our nation. Many of those sins are exactly why we find ourselves where we are. And there's a community basis to stoning that in its own harsh way, and it was, it was a, a, a law of death in a way. Paul talks about that because it was, it was a carnal people God was dealing with. The community was involved in that execution and it impressed something upon them. It's easy to just paint it as just a bunch of angry crowds. But again, often in the stoning, that was someone the person knew. It was not some pleasurable ordeal. They were not a bloodthirsty people just looking forward to whom to stone. God had a structure and a purpose for that society and civilization to make sure they understood the high price of sin, not just for the person, but for the whole community. And that it cannot be tolerated. But that's not what is going on here. Yes, they're using stoning. uh, They're using whatever excuse they happen to have drum up. This was a crowd passionate about murdering this man. This was cruel. And it was driven by hatred. Hatred for what he was saying that turned into hatred for the person. So as they're doing this, as they're stoning him to death, what does it say of him? Acts chapter 7 and verse 59. It says here in verse 59, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Let me say, if that's all this said, what a tremendous testimony that would be. I would hope that if I were in a circumstance like that, that I, that I would have the kind of relationship to God where I was that firm in my faith that I would just recognize this, this is that moment. God, please receive my spirit. It's yours. It's been yours. It's, it's yours now. You know, take it. But that's not the end of his testimony. It says in verse 60, Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. It's interesting to me that 
the exact same phrase we see in verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. There is with murderous, passionate intent to kill. And in verse 60, he cries out with a loud voice that is virtually exactly the opposite. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. How many times do we make excuses? Why well, I'd, I'd forgive so-and-so if, if he or she apologized. Who is apologizing to Stephen? Stephen didn't have time to make excuses because he was busy living the life his Savior generated within him. He was busy living the words of the Sermon on the Mount. And literally with his last breath, possibly spoken through a bloodied mouth and shattered teeth, asking God not to hold his murderers accountable for the very murder they were inflicting upon him. Now going back to the statement we heard earlier, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. But what was inside Stephen was constant. One rock didn't change it. A hundred rocks did not change it. Brethren, we have to understand this is a radical faith. It does go beyond human expectation. In fact, even though it's an 11th verse, let's wrap up with this in Matthew chapter 5. At the end of those 10 verses is this one verse you could consider as a summary. After saying all of these things, Christ says in verse 48, of Matthew chapter 5 at the end of the chapter. Therefore you shall be perfect. Just as your father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you. But that's intimidating to me. That should be intimidating to us. He's literally telling us our goal. Is to be perfect. To be perfect like Jesus Christ. He's saying what is your goal in this life? Your goal is my life. Is to live like I live. To hold the standards that I hold. The values that I hold. To love other people the way I love other people. Again, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That should be intimidating to us. If it's not, it's because we don't understand it. It's because we haven't realized what the fullness of that means. But brethren, as it is intimidating, we have this good news at the end. The very one who commands such things, the very one who has set this kind of standard, is willing, who is condescends to live inside all of us. And the struggle itself to live these things is transformative. Every inch we can near that. Every, every foot, every bit brings us closer and closer to the standard of Jesus Christ. And that is transformative. And he will not require us to go a, a millimeter without being there with us to do it. And it is worth it. Because brethren, this is the only path to eternity. We should not seek to forge another. Let all of us be willing to embrace, brethren, the radical faith that's been given to us by Jesus Christ.